Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. When you hear the name Mike Iltz, a few words may come to mind. Storm chaser, atmospheric scientist, journal author, entrepreneur, pioneer of weather, and they are all right. Today, we're pleased to welcome Mike Iltz, who currently serves as the vice president of the Weather Business Unit at the Data Transmission Network, or DTN. His impressive career spans nearly four decades and his innovative thinking about how government agencies and private companies can better serve their communities and clients is revolutionary. We'll discuss his early contributions to severe weather forecasting and verification, and we'll also learn about this company's vision of using big data solutions to provide weather analytics and improve hazardous weather prediction to customers across the globe. Mike, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's, just, uh, it's an honor to be, be on here. Well, you know, if, if, if you're familiar with the podcast or have at least heard about it, the first question out of the gate to every guest <laughs> is, how'd you become a weather geek? Is it some story uh, back in your youth or some experience, some storm? How, what's your story? Well, my story, I grew up in Minnesota, actually, and uh, in Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And, uh, um, you know, the first real thing I remember is I was in Boy Scouts and they had a weather merit badge. And as part of that, you had to make a rain gauge and you had to make an anemometer and you had to go out and take recordings of, of weather for a month and then all those kinds of things. And, and I always enjoyed just being outdoors in any way. It's just a kind of outdoor kind of guy and, and did a lot of sports outdoors and other things. And so I think that that merit badge kind of made me realize it's that extra spark that sort of said, hmm. I kind of like this. And so after that, I started exploring it kind of as a career, as a thought, you know, as a thought process, even in maybe sixth or seventh grade. And I think that was this sort of little ignition that uh, started the whole process of, of thinking about it. And, uh, and I was really good at science and math and those kind of things. So it, it fit very well into uh, where I was going with my, my life. And uh, um, that, that's how it all happened. Well, you you certainly did not just disrupt our AMS statistics, which show many people get interested around sixth, seventh, or eighth grade. That's certainly right. part of my story as well. So we, I mean, we, we have numbers from AMS that really show consistently that many of us in this field, that was kind right. of a sweet spot age. So, uh, which is why I often advocate for a lot of our sort of outreach and education activities to really target that age as well, because by the time they get to high school or college, it's probably, probably too late if we want to track track students in. But let me let me just list list some of the credentials of Mike uh, to the listeners before we really move forward. He's the Senior Vice President of Weather Business Unit at DTN, uh, which is based in Norman, Oklahoma. He co-founded WTD, which is Weather Decisions Technologies, with four colleagues and served as president and CEO for 18 years. Before that, and this is where I want to go next, too, he served as the uh, assistant director for, from 1993 to 2000 at the uh, National Severe Storms Lab. He was at the National Severe Storms Lab from 1981 to 2000, has bachelor's and master's degree in meteorology from University of Oklahoma. But check this out, listeners, because there are a lot of different pathways in our field. He also has an MBA in finance and management from the University of Oklahoma as well, and has participated in the senior executive fellow program 
of the Business and Administration and Management, uh, I guess, department or program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He's written over 75 papers in meteorological journals along with conference presentations, and he's a fellow of the AMS, which is one of the highest honors in meteorology period. So we're talking to someone which I'll, I'll go ahead and say he's a superstar in our field. He's well known. People know who he is. Very well respected. But I want to go back to your NSSL days. Talk to us about that experience. Uh, many people that listen to Weather Geeks may not be as familiar with NSSL, perhaps, as those of us that are inside the community. Well, absolutely. And, you know, so NSSL is, is today and continues to be a, a premier research organization um, that sits in the government, you know, in the government, in NOAA. Uh, what's really exciting about the sort of the dual functions of, as I see the Sphere Storms Lab is not only doing basic research into understanding storms and thunderstorms and those kind of things, but they're also very practical in bringing things that will help NOAA and the National Weather Service provide forecasts and warnings going in the future too. So Doppler weather radar was basically invented there, if you will, and, and, and the whole weather, you know, next track program and WSR-88Ds were all prototyped there, all the specs were built from there, the the key people are there um, that, that drove that program. And so if anything, NSSL is definitely known for its radar expertise and weather radar expertise, and, but also just understanding severe storms and tornado genesis, uh, severe weather, all, all those things. So really, a you know, premier organization that we should all be proud of as a, as a government organization in, uh, in the United States. Yeah, and I, and I agree with that statement. Many people that listen to this podcast are weather enthusiasts or weather professionals or just people that are curious. And Oftentimes, it's not obvious that there's sort of this really diverse and deep bench in terms of research and development within the weather, weather enterprise. And the NSSL, the National Severe Storms Lab, is a key pillar in that foundation, particularly, as you noted, as it relates to radar. So I, I always like for guests to really give some of those roots and some of those sort of inner workings of our enterprise that they don't see when they look at radar scope or when they pull up a, a new WSR-88D or even now the, the new polar, the dual pole radar systems or others. So it's important for people to know that. The other thing that people, and we'll get to many of your professional activities, but you're also known as a legendary storm tra chaser. And... <laughs> As, as we're taping this this week, there's a buzz. Uh, there's an announcement that the new, there's a possible reboot of uh, a Twister that's coming out. And I think Twister probably popularized storm chasing for many people, but well before sort of the casual storm chaser or the sort of vacation storm chaser, it's always been a part of research. Tell us about your experiences there. Well, you know, I when I first joined uh, NSSL, I was a graduate student and, you know, part of every spring, all the excitement part of the spring was to, to run programs and, and uh, you know, things like Vortex, which came out later, but we did think, you know, mini Vortex, we were really thinking through if we have, we had two prototype Doppler weather radars and to verify, if, is it something that the country should invest in, we need to verify to see whether we could detect tornadoes, detect, you know, hail, those kinds of things. And so as a graduate research assistant and then as a, a, you know, a young scientist, if you will, at Sphere Storms Lab in the spring, one thing you did was your job was to hop in a, in a truck or a car or whatever, and you would spend God a number of hours because you, know, you spend, you drive to anywhere within 230 kilometers at each one of those two radars we had out there. Our job was to be, in, to be either outside look, taking pictures or when we're doing hail verification, it really was to drive through the hail core to see how big the hail was because we were building algorithms at the time to 
estimate using radar signatures, how big was the hail? So having verification on the ground, not just somebody driving afterwards and picking up hail, but actually being in the in the store was part of our job. And I, I always joke that, you know, graduate research assistants are kind of disposable, you know, if you lose one or two here or there, because it's, <laughs> not, it's just not that big of a deal. Not true, but, but you know, it, it's kind of that mode of our goal was, it was pretty, very focused, you know, very focused time in the, in the early mid eighties around, we want to build a new Doppler weather radar network for the whole United States, but we need to verify and, and prove and get algorithms that help meter out and help the forecasters to predict when tornadoes are going to happen and predict when, when hail is going to be a certain size. And so there's a big program every spring around uh, getting out there and getting in the field and, and taking pictures, taking video, driving through storms so that we understood what we're seeing on radar and can correlate it back and forth. And, and there's there's rumors, or perhaps it's true, that Twister was loosely based on that NSSL, and I'm sure there was some consulting being done. What's your thought on the movie Twister? Are you excited about it? Have you seen it? <laughs> well, of course I, I saw it. I mean, you know, back, back then we actually, at Sphere Storms Lab, we, we got a copy, early copy of the draft of the manuscript for, for or Twister, and the one thing I remember that we helped them change to make it somewhat scientifically valid was they had a tornado touching down like in West Texas, and over two days it came to Oklahoma, and so they, their, their brain was thinking that hurricanes are tornadoes, and so we got them at least to realize that tornadoes aren't, aren't on the ground for 24 plus hours, they're only on the ground for a little bit of time, and so right. it changed a little, I think we actually had some positive effect in, in, in the movie itself, and and how they did things and they came here to Norman and we met with the, them and some of the we got to meet you know a few of the stars and that kind of stuff where they're here they just some filming here and filming in northern Oklahoma uh, as part of it so we were not actively involved but we were involved enough to maybe add a little bit of credence to the science in, in, in the movie itself but the, obviously there's places in the movie where cows are flying by and they're strap themselves to a pole and and they live uh, they you know they would beat to death by all the debris that was flying but that's, you know, it's, that's it's, a for, right? It's a, I always remind people it's a movie. Look, you know, Ewoks and Chewbacca, they, they don't really exist, but they entertain us. It's, it's movie. But exactly. you, you have also been a pioneer in sort of rainfall estimation from radar. And I think a lot of people don't realize this, but those radars that you pull up on your apps or you see from the National Weather Service, they're useful at what we call quantitative precipitation estimation. They, they can give us information on rainfall over large areas. Uh, using these fancy terms, let's geek out for a second, called ZR relationships or even different kinds of relationships now that we're in a dual polarization regime. Talk to us about sort of your early work in using radars to estimate precipitation. Well, you know, another way of verifying, verifying things, and, you know, I've been a big you know, flash floods, for example, cause more damage than tornadoes or you know, more deaths every year. People drive through flash floods, you know, rivers and other things that overflow their banks and stuff. And, so that was another part of our verification, but there we had rain gauges and we actually had some special rain gauges we put out uh, around the, around Oklahoma at the time. But, uh, and, but this was a whole program around using radar and rain gauge combined to verify and then tweak, if you will, the radar signature. First of all, it was just about, you said a ZR relationship and then it became ZDR when we got dual pole. But uh, uh, even today in our company, we are doing, continue to make a, uh, you know, strides going forward by using a combination of radar, even satellite, but, but mainly radar and rain gauge to create the really good estimates of precipitation because it has a huge impact on agriculture, on uh, naming lots of different fields, right? Flash flood warnings are really, really important. But back in the day, early on, before we even had the NextRev program, 
there's a lot of work done again in the verification side of things with, with rain gauges and, and just doing that ZR relationship and then biasing it to what the rain gauges actually saw so you could get to a a, uh, a true estimate of, of, of rainfall and it's not perfect but it's pretty dang good now um, we could just use radar by itself with a dual pole and you get a really good estimate of, of rainfall but having rain gauges still helps a little bit in the process and yeah let me just geek out a little bit because you know I, I studied a little radar meteorology with my master's degree with Peter Ray at Florida State uh, before yep. I went on to NASA and then did my PhD these ZR relationships that you keep hearing us mention some of you may be what are you, what are you guys talking about yeah. but again remember the radar is actually sending out a pulse of microwave energy into the cloud and there's backscatter return off of the what we call hydrometeors, the raindrops and so forth. And that power return, there are these sort of empirical relationships, these sort of relationships between the power return and an estimate of the rainfall rate based on the time of year, the climatology, the seasonality, all kinds of things. And so um, as Mike's talked about, it's gotten better over the years. And now we have dual polarization radar, uh, which can, because it's sending out, you know, two different sort of polarizations, we can get things on the shapes and sizes of the drop. So things have just gotten better. I want to now pivot a little bit to your private companies. So you founded or co-founded WTDT back in 2000, uh, which was a weather analytics and decision support function, I imagine, mostly in that company. And now you're involved in uh, DTN. Talk a little bit about your early experience founding that company. So the, the thesis behind our company was that you know, we did this. So at the Sphere Storms Lab, we had built a whole bunch of automated algorithms around detecting Tornadoes automatically the radar, detecting hail, detecting, you know, those kinds of things, uh, uh, rainfall uh, estimation, those kinds of things. Um, we also worked with another group called CAPS, which had a, uh, a model that did really high resolution forecasting at the time. And so we, we took the knowledge and licensed some of those technologies and brought them out. At the time, we believed that our thesis, we had two theses. One, one was that uh, the private sector was not really adopting science at the time. It was in, in weather. It was just sort of taking whatever the government was giving them and, and using it in, in, in format. So we were going to change the world by, by uh, doing that. And then secondly, the, a little bit of frustration at the Sphere Storms Laboratories. We built all this great stuff, and then the, the typical government technology transfer process is about seven years. And so we figured we could do it in one year instead of seven years. We could, we could beat the government to the game, which would give us an advantage in the marketplace. And so that's how we, you know, five of us basically jumped off of a cliff uh, and built a parachute as we were going down um, uh, by starting WDT. And, and, you know, it, looking back was a huge risk. I mean, my, my first daughter was born like uh, two months before we started a company. I was a GS-15 in the government, blah, blah, blah. And here I am just starting a brand new company with, you know, $800,000 money we raised from friends and family, basically. And, but, you know, the, the, the core thesis was the right thesis, that uh, we, we thought we could be a decision support company. We thought it could be in a, you know, high end. It wasn't called analytics at the time. It was called expert systems and whatever else. But we, we were able to be, use that and grow. And, you know, we grew to, you know, it took us, you know, it's, Obviously, there's the ups and downs of any business as we've worked our way through it, but uh, we did. And, you know, we grew in Norman and uh, we grew from four of us initially to about 100 or so when we, we sold the DTN after 18 years. And, uh, um, you know, it was a wild ride, a, a fun ride. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy building things. And so, you know, at the Sphere Storms Lab, I built a team from like eight to 100 in the government. We had a lot of uh, next red money came in and a lot of other, you know, 
aviation money from the FAA came in as we're doing these really innovative things and in, in uh, estimating things and seeing things with radar. So there's a big growth there. And then jumped out to uh, the, the, the WDT and did the same thing. Grew from four to 100 basically uh, in 18 years. And uh, you know, along the way, there's lots of uh, ups and downs. But uh, I think the core part of how I, I think about it is that our core underlying thesis was always be the best in technology, and that'll drive drive the business and uh, so we you know being in Norman creates a lot of value there's 1200 people that work in the weather industry here in Norman and so to be just part of that conversation every day if you will for technology to be able to attract employees from the other organizations to uh, license technologies from those organizations just Norman created a, a sort of an added value to us that uh, other companies in, in the weather space didn't get basically because they aren't in Norman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with a legendary figure within the weather climate enterprise and Mike Eiltz, who's the vice president of DTN's weather business unit and has done so many other things that you probably have gotten a sense of already. Talk now about your role at DTN. And again, some people might be familiar with some of your products, I'm imagining. Some people probably have a couple of them on their phone, perhaps. But tell us a little bit about your business there and what you're up to. So you know, GTN is a not known that well in the weather industry, which is crazy because it, it's, we think we are the largest weather company in the world now, even though we're just a division of, uh, as far as a private weather company. Um, you know, We've acquired in the last uh, five, last three years, basically, WT, which is the business that I, I founded, um, Wilkins Weather Media Group in Europe, so a very large weather company in Europe we acquired, WeatherZone, the largest company in Australia, uh, Metstat, a nice Fort Collins company that does precip estimation. Um, we just recently, back in May, acquired uh, from iTerris company, we acquired ClearAg and their weather analytics business from them. So. You know, we've accumulated basically six new weather companies uh, in, in the last two years, basically, and built it into a, a solid team of more than 500 people working in the weather industry. And so we are a, you know, a, a, a large weather company. We, we play in many different places. We play in, I can list the, the, the six industries that we really work in. It's shipping, aviation, utilities surface transportation, which is really a winter roads kind of business, uh, offshore oil and gas, and then kind of generically the business continuity space for all businesses have how weather impacts them. We have a business that just focuses on, on big businesses, if you will. And then we do have uh, uh, some consumer plays too. We have a uh, radar scope app uh, that's very well known. It's uh, used by a large percentage of meteorologists, uh, which is a great, great business. And, and we've launched that now in Australia, and we're going to launch it in Germany here uh, very, very soon with the radars in Germany. Um, and then we have Weather Zones a consumer app in, the, in Australia and Weather Pro app in Europe. And so we have this, you know, it's honestly, it's like a $15 million consumer business in the middle of all this, too, that we're trying to look at how do we become one global 
look at that too. But uh, so we're pretty diverse, but we're very large uh, from a weather perspective and uh, mainly focused on B2B and driving how do we drive data science and analytics into the into the industry and kind of change change the way that people think about the weather industry, not just providing forecasts, but providing analytics and data science kind of outputs uh, for them instead. I think I think this is a great example of how one of the things that I've noticed in my 25-ish years or more in the, the enterprise is just the the sort of sort of evolution of the role of the private sector in the weather enterprise. And it's always been there. And the relationships between, say, the federal sector and the private sector has evolved because I think it was oh, yeah. somewhat, uh, at times, contentious or ill-defined. But I think the American Meteorological Society and others have done a good job of kind of helping forge a community. Uh, and we're seeing this even more and more. And we're, we're hearing talk about uh, the EPIC modeling system and you know satellites being launched now, whether satellites being launched by the private industry. And I think, frankly, the federal uh, policymakers and others are really urging more private sector uh, activity and innovation as well. We're seeing it in places like NASA with SpaceX. Right. Where are you in terms of your company and your thoughts on this, Mike? What's what's next in terms of the private sector role or your company's role? I mean, what, I mean, you, you've kind of done a nice job of laying out sort of your B two B activities and your your business model and so forth, but forth, but. How far should or will the private sector go in the weather enterprise? Or are you, is the private sector going to be producing its own weather radar networks in the future, or issuing, issuing its own warnings, and should it? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. It's, it's talked about a lot. I mean, if, if you talk about the United States or Western Europe, for example, or other places in Australia, for example, where you have really strong weather services, if you will, um, and they're, they're making large investments in radars and and, and model global models and all those things it, it doesn't make my sense in my mind that we should be running a global model in, in for example in, in in btn there's very good global models it's a, it's a race to the bottom there's not much extra value we can add um uh radars are very expensive and, and you know to keep a radar network of 144 radars uh, in the united states very very large expense and so there's a lot of roi for the country as a whole but for a, a business to do that i mean yeah you could take it on as a paid for by the government to, to support it, for example, but from just a build, you know, install it just to use for your business, it doesn't really make a lot of uh, business sense. Um, but if you then if you go into the emerging markets, maybe it's different. They don't have the money or the funds, and there might be times when a few large businesses or the agriculture business or whatever might want to fund a single, for example, and then it might make sense for us to put in a radar and we've done that a couple places in the world and multiple places in the world actually um, where we have radars and lightning networks and, and those kind of things so that we can then provide services into that country um, at, at a better pace. But I'd say in general, um, you know, I, some companies are throwing up these small satellites and those kind of things. I think those provide added value. I think in the, in the space where we live in, the idea I think is, you know, do we want to do warnings? We do warnings all the time for our customers. We, they're, they're, but they're quite different. We also pass along all in the United States, we pass along all the National Weather Service watches and warnings too to our customers. But there are times when, you know, a, a severe thunderstorm warning for an outdoor event is way too, the criteria is way too high. They, they want to know if it's going to start raining. They want to know if there's lightning within eight miles. They want to know those kinds of things. And so we're much more tailored to our customers, either individually or at least by customer segment. Uh, to, so our warnings, we have meet, 
we have 242 meteorologists all over the world that are a part of just almost like the National Weather Service. We have a large group of, of all over the world and we're providing warnings and statements and expert communication uh, for those customers in that process too. So it's a similar function, just more focused in a core set of customers, if you will. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Mike Iles about, about all things private sector and his roles in the federal sector, private sector, and the broader community of weather. Now, he, he's just one of those people. Um, you may not, as a listener, be familiar with this name, but uh, if you walk the halls of an AMS meeting or an, or an NWA meeting, people know the name. And so I want to kind of pick your brain now as kind of a thought leader or a leader within our field. What do you, from your lens, it's just an opinion. It may not be right or wrong. What do you what do you think are the most significant advances in our field that you've seen in the last 20 years? Well, especially when you think about the private sector, I, I think the, the quality, I, I think there was actually a tipping point maybe five years ago to, to now, somewhere in there, where the quality of the global forecast, the quality of the high resolution forecast, the models, um, there's a tipping point somewhere where all of a sudden it was valuable to business to actually the forecasts are good enough that they could use them to make decisions. And I think a decade ago, people were like, yeah, it's, there's some value in those forecasts, but I really can't trust them enough to do things. But today, I think the whole, you know, the ECMWF, the National Weather Service, uh, you know, the NSEP models, you know, GFS and others, um, they've gotten better and better and better so that we can then combined in, an, in ensemble ways and, and create forecasts. So modeling is, is, is huge and, and, and the, you know, the, the process of just incremental process of every year we get better and better and better is really important. I do believe that radars have made a huge difference. Uh, the capability to be able to identify where storms are, where they're moving to, how hazardous they are, saves lives every day. Um, you know, National Weather Service watches and warnings, warnings especially are, are create a huge value to to the to the individual consumer, but also to businesses and, and others. Um, and you can go on and on. I think there's just this there's incremental pieces that just keep pushing things. Lightning networks create a lot of value, and, and so to me, it's all those things create value. And and one thing that a private sector and the national weather service both do is we're, our ability to combine all those things into a coherent story to tell our our customers or the you know the public creates the ultimate value, basically, um, which is probably the most exciting thing for our field in, as a whole is that we there have been many investments by many governments and many private sectors to get to a spot where today our, our consuming customers or the consumers have much more value uh, created for them so they understand, you know, almost every single person has a phone app that it's a weather app at this point and they use it in, in whatever way they might want to use it for. 
So which you, your answer prompted another question. So we went from an era of radar where we were just sending out a pulse of microwave energy, it bounces off and we're like, oh, it's raining there, to the 88D era where we added some Doppler principles of shifted frequency so that we could get the motion of the hydrometeors. And then we have evolved to dual polar metric where we're sending out two polarized wave forms, if you will, and gleaning information from that. So I guess where I'm headed with this is what's next in radar? Well, the Sphere Storms Lab is obviously the leader, right? And they're working on phased array radar. And uh, phased array ra radar is basically the same thing, except you have a whole bunch of small phased, phased radars, if you will. And so you can update the whole atmosphere. So right now it takes us a few minutes, typically five, six minutes, to spin the radar around and, and get it all the way to the top and back to the bottom. And, and they've played some games so we get back to the bottom more often now every minute or 90 seconds or so. But with phased array, you literally can do dual pole Doppler and regular reflectivity, but you can do it almost instantaneously because you typically have a phase, you have like a cube, if you will, of things, and you can see basically you just scan it electronically instead of, or, you know, instead of a mechanical process. And so we'll be able to see, we'll have these like storm tracking kinds of things where it's updating every few seconds in, in, in the storm. And I've, I've seen quite a bit of the, of the, of the results of some of the, the prototypes that they're doing here. It's amazing to see all the changes that you can see on a second-by-second -second basis in a storm, for example. And, and part of this is cool, uh, but part of it creates a lot of knowledge and, and, and value and, and doing warnings and things going forward. So I think we're still five to ten years away from that being actually in the field and, and being used. But uh, that's where it's going next is, is definitely a phased array approach to the world. Uh, is your business or your business principles or business model in any way impacted by evolving or changing climate? Well, I think it is. I mean, you know, one of our core thesis, you know, one of the core thesis of, of the, the company that owns us is that uh, they did a lot of research and, and I helped them think through this. But, uh, you know, basically, if you think about what are the, what are the, why would you invest in weather today? Why would you buy a whole bunch of companies and combine them and, and, one of the things is that climate change, and you can get into a huge argument about climate change if we wanted to, we're not going to do that today, uh, but there definitely seems to be a more extreme events, and whether that's more hurricanes or more severe weather or more droughts or, or whatever. And so businesses are impacted by that, and businesses are definitely investing more and more into the, the realization that they are going to have more damage, they are going to have more events. So. That's one of the, the core underlying theses in our in our business model is that there are going to be more events, there are going to be more damage, and companies are going to invest to mitigate that risk in, in it more and more. So to get that and you do a better job at forecasting at the same time, it's sort of a confluence of, of really important things for a business to make bigger investments in what we do. And, and then we can provide more value to our customers too because we can do the good forecast we can have expert communicators that help them think through things when things are hitting the fan, if you will. And uh, at that point, we create a lot of value. But I think we're definitely seeing, partly because climate change is in the news all the time, but I think partly because climate change is really happening and it's really impacting businesses, they're, they're saying we got to mitigate this and, and they're starting to do things and, and, and spend money on, on mitigating those risks, which is you know, right where we're trying to sit and try and create value for our customers. Yeah, I was, I was struck recently by uh, AT&T, which has a big presence here in the South and uh, corporately in their recent climate resiliency challenge that they issued to universities to help them 
um, with some of their business models and some of their assets and infrastructure that they're they're worried about in terms of extreme events. So yeah, yeah I think you're spot on with that. My last question, Mike, for you. I mean, you're you're someone that obviously is a weather, and I'm, I'm sure you don't won't be offended by this because I'm one too. You're you're a weather geek. You know, that's why we call right. it weather geeks. But you also recognize early on that weather was not just about standing in front of a green screen telling the weather or about a radar or about a satellite. It's about value add for different industries in entertainment or other industries. If you're if there's a young scholar or student listening to this podcast that wonders about the right skill set to kind of take the pathway that you've taken in our field, what would what would your advice be? You know, I get to talk to University of Oklahoma students every once in a while and, and uh, one of the things I, one advice I always try to give to them is that the, if you just get a degree in meteorology and you don't spread out and do something else too, unless you want to go get a PhD, which is a very valid thing to do, um, but if you if you come out with a bachelor's or master's degree in meteorology only and you haven't done computer programming, you haven't done data science, you haven't decided to be on a, on, on television, which is a, a very valid uh, thing. If you if you if you want to be a forecaster, you just get a four year degree in meteorology. It qualifies you to work at Walmart and Target, and uh, um, that's sad, but that's that's the reality. Is there's a glut of bachelor's degree in meteorology in, in the marketplace, and we, we put out an announcement about a year ago, a year and a half ago now, where we had 93 applicants for a forecaster position, um, and we thought about 75 percent of those applicants were actually working at Walmart or Target um, because they got their bachelor's degree in meteorology and they couldn't find a job. And so they went off and did other things. And so I encourage anybody that's doing, go get a business degree with it, go get a data science degree or minor or whatever, be really good at computer science, you know, at, at programming, anything besides that, because there's a lot of value. We have, we have meteorologists that are accountants in our business. We have meteorologists that are customer success. They're sales. They're, they forecast. They do, you know, our, our, most of our developers have a meteorology degree or at least a strong interest in meteorology. So we're used across our whole business, but very few actually get into the forecasting side of the business. And so having some other capability or special knowledge or special skill creates a lot of value. And the salaries are much higher, too, to be honest with you, when it really gets down to it. Yeah, you know, I, I'm thinking about a student that just graduated from my program at the University of Georgia and Alan Illinoff. Shout out to Alan. He got his degree in atmospheric sciences and a finance degree as well. So he yeah. was an interesting hybrid that uh, I saw before my eyes in our program. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. But before we get out of here, I do have to do something I do every podcast, and it's the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Clayton Lukes, who's a data scientist in Pennsylvania. Clayton is a big fan of the Weather Channel, and he once created a retro Weather Channel display that provided current conditions along with hourly and daily forecasts. His favorite kind of weather is heavy snow, not mine, Clayton. And we know that the state is no stranger to seeing some of the most blockbuster storms uh, that we can get in this country. Even though he loves the snow, he most vividly remembers the flooding that occurred in Western Pennsylvania during Hurricane Ivan in 2004, which caused an estimated $264 million in damages. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, be sure to check out our Twitter, and Facebook pages. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. 
Well, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation with you and uh, I really appreciate you uh, inviting me. Oh, absolutely. Happy to have you. And if there are any things on the horizon you want to come back and share, we'll happily have you again as well. But for now, this is Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And thanks again for listening to Weather Geek. See you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.